At Midway USA, we know the AR-15 is one of the most popular rifles in modern American history. Known for its modularity and widespread use, it's often considered essential to any gun collection. The essential things you need to run an AR-15 are usually always in stock during shortages, things like magazines and 5.56 ammo. Whether you're looking to buy a new AR-15 or buy parts for your modern sporting rifle, log on and for just about everything for the outdoors, shop MidwayUSA.com. Knives, machetes, saws, and shears, multi-tools, shovels, swords, axes, spears, hatchets, and tomahawks. If it cuts, snips, slices, or chops, Midway USA has it. Find great gift ideas in our huge selection of pocket knives and other everyday carry folding knives. Make a statement or create a family legacy with one of our top-of-the-line hunting knives. We've got a great selection of manual and electric sharpeners, too. For just about everything for the outdoors, check out MidwayUSA.com. Oh, here we go, boys. Go. Oh, I love that sound. This is a good one. Hello, everybody, and welcome to the Full Scale Outdoors Podcast, Waterfall Wednesday edition. I'm your host, Nick Johnson. I'm glad to be back with you this week. We missed last week. I was just getting back from uh, spring snow goose hunting in Saskatchewan. I was up there for four weeks, five weeks. And let me tell you, the hours up there are demanding, to say the least. Um, I think uh, the last day I hunted, the... Legal shooting time was around 4.55 a.m. So, uh, yeah, 4.55 a.m., you're getting out there. You're, I was setting my alarm for like 1.30, 2 o'clock in the morning. Um, legal shooting time uh, on the on the end of it went to about 9.30 p.m., so running morning hunts, afternoon hunts, and sleeping in the middle of the day pretty much kind of took its toll. And when I got back last week, I got back, uh, gee, I got back Tuesday at about 1 o'clock, 1 a.m. Tuesday, and I went to bed about 2 a.m. Tuesday. I woke up about 2 p.m. Tuesday, went back to bed about 5 p.m. Tuesday, <laughs> slept until about 11 a.m. Wednesday. I mean, just absolutely just crashed for a day and a half, pretty much, uh, which was well needed after uh, getting back from Saskatchewan. And, uh, we could do a little recap on that. I mean, it was fantastic hunting. Uh, the decoying up there is bar none, just um, just decoying snow geese like you can't believe. Uh, smaller groups, you're hunting smaller feeds, decoying smaller groups that don't really get very high in the air. They kind of come out low. It's almost like honker hunting just for white geese. Um, it was very enjoyable to kind of get some decoy revenge on them. Uh, if anybody is ever looking to do like a dream vacation trip up there. I would highly recommend booking with who I work for, Prairie Limits Outfitters. Check out prairielimitsoutfitters.com. Uh, if spring snow goose hunting over decoys is something that you dream of and actually being extremely successful with it. Don't get me wrong, we did have our tough days and all that, but it was it was just absolutely incredible. Um, today's show uh, 
is sponsored by let's just call it uh let's call it me i'd like to uh entice everybody to uh to consider please consider booking a hunt with me this summer for pigeons we're gonna start the last week of july we're gonna start the last week of july for pigeons and we're gonna run that through august i'm gonna leave august 27th or 26th for saskatchewan again but we'll be hunting pigeons if you want to get on my books um, it's going to be 150 bucks for a pigeon hunt, and uh, god dang, last year we did fantastic on them. Um, here's a brief side note on, on pigeons. Some guys ask, some people have asked me, why do I run the dates that I run? So I used to hunt pigeons um, 12 months a year, like nonstop. I couldn't be stopped. Um, if I had any period of boredom in which I thought I could squeeze a hunt in, 365 days a year, I went out and I scouted for pigeons to try to make a hunt work. And I don't know if that's a great idea. I was actually thinking about posting this on the Pigeon Hunters Worldwide Facebook page too, to see if anybody else has any experiences like this. But I honestly thought I overkilled my birds in my area to the point where like, it was a huge detriment. Now, when it comes to the best time of the year to hunt pigeons, it is late July and through the month of August. Probably get a couple weeks into September too. Now normally like hunting molt migrant Canada geese has always sucked my attention away from pigeons once you get to September 1st. But I was thinking about posting this on the Pigeon Hunters Worldwide page. Like do you guys ever limit yourself to uh, hunting pigeons only in the summer or only during a, an appropriate time period for your part of the world. Um, one thing I've definitely noticed, um, obviously, like you get to late July and you get the wheat fields start getting cut, the oat fields start getting cut, the small grain fields start getting cut and you get pigeons that start to use them. Not only that, but they've had all of the summer to really breed and uh, produce more pigeons. So you kind of get this big boom in pigeon population that's happening throughout the summer. And then you get this big boom in food supply that happens late summer. And that's when we start hunting them. And we do shoot a lot of very young birds, like when we're hunting out anywhere late summer. Anywhere late summer, you're shooting a lot of young birds. So one thing I have been doing is the last couple few years is just self-regulating my pigeon hunting activities to late July through August, basically like a six-week window. Now, I'm not going to hate on anybody that goes out there and shoots a big pile in the middle of winter um, because I've been, I've been there. I understand the draw. I've done it myself. Maybe... Maybe the feelings I have now aren't even correct. Like, maybe I just think I overkilled the pigeons. It might not have even been the case, but I wouldn't hate on anybody for doing it just because I'm not sure, but I, it is something to think about if you're a pigeon killer out there and you're like me in my younger days when I just wanted to 365 go out there and smash pigeons as much as I could. I really think it's worth it to save pigeon hunting for the best available pigeon hunting time. Like, I would hate to do anything like where I'm going out there doing hunts that are like 20 bird hunts, 30 bird hunts, 50 bird hunts, whatever it might be like throughout the season. But I'm really shaving off or significantly shaving off the success that I could be having um, in that late July through August season when it's really time to capitalize. 
And I would hate to think that I'm doing anything to detriment my success during that season. But anyways, weekends are going to be a little bit tough for me this summer, obviously because of game fair and um, all the other activities. Uh, If it's not at the game fair weekend, uh, game fair weekend, we can probably accommodate you. But I'd love to have you have anybody out on a pigeon hunt. I'm located about an hour east of the Twin Cities in Wisconsin. I am a licensed and insured Wisconsin hunting guide. Another thing I would really like people to consider doing is hunting with me for waterfowl this fall. I get back um, around November 1st and I'm going to start trying to book waterfowl hunts for November 3rd. November 3rd and I'm going to run that through December 16th this year. So I got about about six weeks to run waterfowl hunts here in uh, northwestern Wisconsin. And uh, there's a couple things I was considering doing, and I think I will just, I'll just start off by throwing it out to anybody who's a a listener of the podcast, and that is, I think I'm going to lower my prices this year. I, I would like to book more customers. I only have this short window to actually make money, um, and I do limit the amount of people that I hunt with. So like, there's only six shooters on every hunt. Um, so if you're interested in a waterfall hunt, I'm going to lower my prices from 200 where I was doing last year, and I'm going to do it to 150. First, I might do it for everybody, but first, let's just say if you're a listener to the podcast, like 150 bucks per person. Now, there's another price break I was considering making, and that is, and I'm definitely going to do it to listeners of the podcast for now, but perhaps to the general public later. Something I was kicking around. Look, if you book a full group, which is six guys, six guys is a full group, I'm only going to charge you for five. Another way to look at that is, hey, if you are putting together a full group of people, say you're listening to this podcast and you think, shit, I could get five other people to book with me, then you hunt free, if that makes sense. Book six guys, pay for five. You know, if you want to distribute the savings amongst your group, great. If you want to not tell anybody about it and uh, just hunt for free, then uh, that's that's one thing I'm going to throw out there, too, because I would like to uh, mixed groups. So if you're booked for two people, I will mix groups up to six shooters. However, like if you book six people, then that's your own private group. I'm only running one group of people per day for these six weeks, so I'm not I'm not going to run two groups, two different spreads. I'm only going to run up to six guys. Here's another thing, too, about um, hunting with me is I do not shoot my gun. And neither if I have a guide or guide helper with me or if somebody else is guiding the hunt in the event of uh, my wife giving birth, she's due December 3rd. Um, if somebody else is guiding your hunt, they do not shoot. So one thing about I think one thing that sets hunting with me for waterfall apart is when you book with me, you're not going on a, it's, what was it called? I've seen it called a tag-along hunt. Like when you book a guided tag-along hunt. So you and your buddy or you and your dad book a guided hunt and you show up and it's pretty obvious that uh, you're the only two paying customers there, but there's eight dudes there. You know what I mean? And everybody's shooting and it's kind of like, Look, this is not uncommon, and it's if uh, it's not even, I would say, um, it's it's not uncommon in this part of the world, like the Minnesota, Wisconsin, Dakotas. When you book a guided waterfall hunt, that's the scenario you get into, is a tag along hunt. 
where you got the guide, his buddies, people who usually are contributing in a way that benefits you as the client, you know, like they've scouted. But in other parts of the country, that's not as common. Typically, like what I've seen guiding around is uh, you're not going when you book a hunt, the hunt is should be for you. The guide typically, like in Canada, the guides can't shoot. I like that. I When I started doing that last year, I actually like that. I've seen it like, I guess, you know, not so much complaints from people around here because that's just the hunts that get ran around here, but mostly like on social media, like people saying like they did not like the fact that the guide shot birds while they were paying for a hunt, the guide or the guide's buddies. You know what I'm saying? And so I don't do that. Um, there's If there's me and another person helping call and six people on the hunt, the only people who shoot are the six people who paid to be there. Um, that's just something that I think there's a section, there's a, there's a segment of the waterfowl hunt consumer base that would appreciate that style of hunt being ran in this area because it's uncommon if that makes sense. And another, there's one more discount that I wanted to throw out there too. I really did want to try to get my books a lot more full than they were last year. And, um, that is if you book, um, if you book three hunts with me, I was going to do two or three. Let's just call it three for now. <laughs> I'm making this up as I go, folks. You book three hunts with me, I'm going to buy your Wisconsin hunting license. There's a lot of people that, there's a lot of customers that are in Minnesota and they're like, hey, I've I ran into this last year. Where it's like, I had a, had good hunts lined up and they're like, where are you out of? I'm like, well, I'm running out of Wisconsin. I'm like, ah, all right, never mind. Because it, it immediately adds to the cost of that hunt. Like, ah, like, oh man. And last year I was charging 200 bucks. And so people are like, all right, 200 bucks, sounds good. What's the license cost? Now I got to jump online, blah, blah, blah. Hey, let me take that If let me take that away from you. Like if you're booking three hunts and you're booking a full group of guys for three days, like if you book a group of six for three days, you hunt for free and you get your license for free. And any every person on that three-day trip would get their f license for free. The only thing they would be paying is my guide cost because that's that would be worth it to me to help entice people. And I'm these discounts and these these um, these price reductions and discounts that I'm thinking about doing. I'm not going to be doing those into the future because what I would like to do is get the base of people that will become repeat clients and can see the value once my price does return back to normal, can see the value of hunting with me. And, um, and look forward to coming back. Like my goal is always to have a customer become a repeat customer. Last year, every single group of, that I took out had their opportunity to shoot their limit and most of them shot a band. So we had great success last year and I'm hoping to keep that going. I'm just going to throw that out there. Um, and anyways, um, another thing I think we can, we can polish off this waterfall Wednesday podcast on is, um, is some keeping tabs. Let's go through some tabs. It's been a long time since we've done this, actually. Um, there was something that was going on with my Google alerts. And the thing that was going on is I was not getting Google alerts. I was like, what the fuck is going on? It's kind of like part of my daily routine. I get that Google alert daily digest. And I had too many like Google alerts set, like <laughs> way too many. And I'd get way too many tabs. But all of a sudden, like, 
I noticed I haven't gotten a Google alert daily digest in like four days. And then I started like going in and deleting uh, Google alerts and then adding new ones and nothing was happening. And I was Googling around like for Google alert alternatives. And anyways, I couldn't figure it out. And I deleted all of my Google alerts. And I was like, God, is this even working? And so I put into my Google alert, um, Donald Trump, because I figured if anybody has news or if there's anything that generates news on a daily basis, it's Donald Trump. Next day, bang, got a Google alert. And ever since then, I'm like, all right, go back in there, delete that. I refilled it with waterfowl stuff, and it seems to have been working again. Thank God. But this is how I, um, the, the keeping tabs, if you never listen, it's just, dude, I've got about 100 tabs open on my phone at any given time. Most of them are from Google alerts and I just click on the link and then I go back and I click on all the links I find interesting, hoping that one day I will have the time to sit down and read these articles. And usually I only find the time when doing Waterfall Wednesday episodes. So I get my uh, my Google alerts. I do two types of Google alerts. I do the regular Google alerts where I just put in all sorts of waterfall related uh, keywords. And then I also do um, Google Scholar alerts. So if anybody, if you hear any sort of like study that I'm saying in these Keeping Tabs episodes, that's usually coming from an, a Google alert that I set up on Google Scholar. So Google Scholar is like academic papers and Google is like, headlines from like local newspapers and stuff but I'm pretty sure I have quite a few tabs generated and maybe I can turn you guys on to some interesting reading maybe we can read some stuff together and digest it here's the first article this is actually from Google Scholar the use of the use of drones and thermal camera thermal camera imaging technology for avian nest searching kind of an interesting subject that's been getting more and more um popular and uh, more commonly used technique is finding um, waterfall nests using drones with infrared camera technology on it. So this is where you're flying around a drone with an infrared camera on it, trying to find duck broods. Another, um, the way they used to do this is they would um, go into an area that they were gonna search for a duck brood and like one guy holds a chain and another guy holds the chain like 40 yards away from him and they just grid search like a patch of grass and like you're dragging this chain between the two of you and when a hen pops up, like boom, you stop right there, you set the chain down and you can basically walk, but like you and the other guy start walking back towards the center looking for this nest bowl and then you can find the nest start counting the eggs. Anyways, that's a very, very, very labor intensive process in finding duck brood nests, duck nests. So you wanna start doing like counting how many eggs are in there, um, maybe doing web tags to see how the, like the brood survival, that sort of stuff. It's a very labor intensive um, process. Anyways, so there's this brand new paper called the use of drones and thermal imaging Thermal Camera Imaging Technology for Avian Nest Searching. It's by Rolled Standard. And um, something like this um, is 101 pages long. And I'm just going to briefly scan it for some cool pictures, of which there is a bunch of really cool pictures in there. If you want to check it out, just go ahead and search that. Let's go check out a few different um, tabs that I got open on my phone. Now, I didn't organize these before the podcast that's my bad more wetlands to, more wetlands closed to duck shooters 
This is by Bay93.9. Another wetland has been shut to duck shooters. Game management authority has closed Lake Booker State Game Reserve north of Camperdown to protect threatened hardhead ducks. A recent survey found more than 1,300 of the birds in the wetlands. It comes after Lake Conaware closed to shooting from this weekend to protect the orange-bellied parrot that has been detected in the region. This is a... Uh, this is a... Um, this is a news article from Australia. And if you didn't know, Australian duck hunting is under a lot of threat. The, the It's Duck Season Somewhere podcast with Ramsey Russell just recently within the last month has had a guy from, fuck, he had a guy from, I can't remember the organization right now. Um, it might be Sierra Club or something like that. One of those, no, no, one of those hunting organizations. I don't even know if Sierra Club is a hunting organization. Anyways, he had a great episode about this, about how the anti-hunters have like crazy traction. They might even be able to get... Uh, Victoria is a state in Australia, and they've been trying to get duck hunting closed down there. I think it's really like a cautionary tale. And if you, something like this interests you, check out both... Uh, check out the Ramsey Russell podcast on this, but it's really freaking weird stuff. For example, there's like organized anti-hunting efforts... Like, you can only hunt ducks in a certain amount of places. This article that I'm reading is talking about one of those places no longer being available to duck hunters. The areas that are available to duck hunters, there are organized anti-hunting groups that are allowed to harass you while you hunt. They can get within 30 meters of where you're hunting, and they, like, blow whistles and, like, wave, like, blaze orange signs at ducks so they won't come into your decoys. How fucked up is that? Now, this is illegal in most of the United States. It falls under a category called, like, hunter harassment. Most states, it is illegal to harass hunters, but in Australia, it isn't, and the video are like wild of this on like YouTube. Not only can they do this, but if you cripple a bird and then you um, do not get to it, the antis can go after that crippled bird and they use like nets. To, they'll run after your cripples and they'll use nets to scoop them up and then get that duck to the veterinary clinic to try to save its life. I'm not joking. Like that, that is a real thing that happens in Australia. And look, this... This is not close to happening in the United States, but it definitely could happen in the United States in the future. It's it's freaky to think about, but this is the consequence of people not hunting. Like, people that don't hunt, they don't give a shit about hunting. They don't know that this is an ethical way of sourcing meat. They don't, you know, they just see guns and people killing. Um, I just, you know, it's it, to me, it's, it's unfathomable. I just enjoyed some a goose taco lunch myself. Like I eat these things and I feel good about eating them. And I feel good that I'm staying out of the commercial meat market by hunting most of my meat that I consume on a yearly basis. But these people do not see it that way. And it's, um, it's really crazy. Let's, let's, uh, let's stop talking about Australia. Hey, check out that Ramsey Russell podcast. If you're interested in any more of that, let's see here. I got an article called Whatever happened to muddy water camo after Shark Tank? Now, I'd seen muddy water camo around, and uh, I didn't realize that they were on an episode of Shark Tank. Season four of the Shark Tank sadly saw Steve sadly saw Steve Maloney and his business partner Stephen Kirkpatrick fly away from the show without a deal for their duck hunter camouflage apparel line, Muddy Water Camo. 
I guess I still see it around, I'm not sure. Anyways, there's an article on Looper about these guys who made a camouflage for duck hunting, made it onto Shark Tank, I never saw it. I thought that was kind of interesting. You can check it out yourself, it's on Looper. Anyways, um... Let's check out the next article. This one is called... Oh no, Paywall? They paywalled me. The acquisition... Here's the one. This is an article by Meat Eater. The, acquis, the acquisitions continue. Meat Eater picks up Dave Smith decoys. Dave Smith decoys, if you do not know, is an ultra-premium line of waterfowl and deer and turkey decoys based out of, I believe it's Lebanon, Oregon. And, um... I happen to be uh, buddies with the guys who run Dave Smith Decoys. Co-owners Dave Smith and Brad Cochran have been very good to me. I've been hunting with Brad. I use Dave Smith Decoys on uh, on all my water on all my goose hunts that I've done in the last three or four years. Uh, if anybody's curious, my second favorite decoy to Dave Smith Decoy Giants for hunting large Canada geese is Bigfoots. I still just Bigfoot Originals um, are are my number two, and that's just gonna just be based on color size durability, effectiveness. And if you look at a Dave Smith decoy giant, they are bigger than Bigfoot originals. So like they're enormous decoys, which has something to do with their effectiveness. Anyways, uh, one cool thing about Dave Smith decoys is um, those um, giants have always been manufactured in the United States. It's a USA made decoy. Some of their products now are made overseas um, in China. I believe their new honker floaters are. Um, the honker, uh, the giant sleeper shells, the stackable ones, uh, the non-stackable ones are still manufactured in the United States. I believe all their turkey decoys are manufactured in the United States. Uh, their snow goose line is coming out of China. Anyways, they've started to kind of integrate some products to China, but it's, it's kind of just been like new products that they've added to their line. The, the like flagship products, they're still manufactured and painted and shipped from direct to consumer from Oregon. Well, anyways, um, Meat Eater, the company Meat Eater, which has got a Netflix show, um, has picked up Dave Smith decoys. So the, here's a, this is on the Gear Junkie website. And uh, that's what it's called. The acquisitions continue. Meat Eater picks up Dave Smith decoys. The growing conglomerate that started as a Netflix show announced its latest strategic acquisition of an industry leading hunting equipment brand today. Um, <laughs> there's a subheader. Meat Eater should consider renaming itself Company Eater. I don't know who where that quote came from. Anyways, that's because the Bozeman, Montana company just announced its most recent acquisition of a hunting interest brand, one in a jag that's continued steadily since 2019. Hunters know Dave Smith Decoys, DSD, for its namesake product and attention to detail it imbues within them. As Meat Eater described in a press release announcing it acquiring the company, DSD renders uncompromising commitment in its specialty decoys in the turkey, waterfowl, and deer categories. We have a track record of bringing trusted brand partners into the Meat Eater fold and helping them expand their products and reach, Meat Eater founder Stephen Rinella said in the release. I've been using DSD for a bunch of years. Their decoys are high quality and look more realistic than anything on the market. When we had the chance to introduce them, even more people... When we had the chance to introduce even more people to this exceptional brand, we jumped at it. It's the most recent such chance his company has jumped at. 
First Light came under the Meat Eater umbrella in 2019, FHF Gear joined in 2020, and Phelps Game Calls over in 2021. It's also brought content creators into the fold like whitetail-focused platform The Element in late 2022. Dave Smith Decoys reassures mission. DSD promised to maintain its priorities as a company while building its outreach in conjunction with Meat Eater, maintaining the quality of products as a top priority to all of us while simultaneously promoting hunting in a positive light to preserve our hunting heritage, DSD co-owner Brad Cochran said in the release. The company's top leadership will evidently remain on the board. Greg Hogan, co-owner and manager of operations for DSD, Teased new product releases soon, which figured to expand its line of advanced crosslink elastomer ACE decoys from its Oregon-based plant. ACE is the type of product pl- uh, plastic that they use in their decoys. It is very, very good. Um, it's also very expensive. Um, most duck and goose decoys advertise that they use EVA plastic. Um, you'll see that, like EVA plastic... It's got a little bit of give to it. It's also really soft. To me, it looks greasy. I've never been a big fan of like EVA plastic decoys. DSD uses something called ACE. ACE is what they call it, ACE technology. Bigfoot's my number two. They use polyethylene. They don't use EVA or ACE. They just use a polyethylene plastic. Um... So I'm, I'm, I'm preference to ACE and then polyethylene second and then EVA third. Um, just this, the EVA kind of leaves a grease look to them, which will kind of have like a little bit of a shine to it that the ACE doesn't. And neither does um, the polyethylene that Bigfoot uses. Bigfoot like also cooks in their paint in some way that they've been doing since the 80s. That's obviously worked out really well for them. Um, and another thing that... Um, the ace does is they don't use very much paint on uh on dave smith decoys like they the the paint adhesion is is uh fantastic they don't need to spray it down with like a candy coated shell of paint to get the right colors and uh, that helps with the durability as well and it helps with keeping the decoys not shiny because when you don't have like a candy coating of paint you don't have as many flat spots that can cause reflection Anyways, uh, so there's been a lot of talk like in circles that I'm in a part of about like, what does this mean for the DSD brand? Uh, hey, my my take is we are going to have to wait and see on that. Let's just give them a chance. I don't think that um, Brad Cochran or Dave Smith are interested in seeing their brand turn to shit in any way, shape or form. If anything, perhaps they can use the money or the reach or the business contacts of meat eater to maybe even make their product even better i'm not gonna just shit on it or praise it one way or another uh it's kind of an interesting thing that's happening that um dsd has kind of uh has grown man uh dsd's been around a long time back when i was a kid uh hardcore decoys first came out and that was being made in a garage in idaho by these two dudes marcus fletcher and Corey hamrick now, uh, there was, that was like the custom decoy revolution was like early 2000s, like all this, there was hardcore. There was also one other company you could get custom decoys from, and that was Dave Smith Decoys. But there was like a three-year waiting list or something like that. And then there was another custom decoy company called um, Arrow Outdoors, and they made a goose decoy called the Drop Zone Elites, 
which are freaking crazy, awesome looking goose decoys. Also true one piece goose decoys. Anyways, um, then like when we were all on the forums, like people were talking about how they were on like waiting lists. Now they didn't even have anything but their uh, like cackler size decoys pretty much. So people in the Pacific Northwest were really uh, keen on using either stuffers or custom decoys like Hardcores or Dave Smith's or Arrow Outdoors. So all this stuff kind of started in the Pacific Northwest for hunting cackling geese. And um, then all of a sudden I remember there was no more waiting list for Dave Smith and it was an actual real company with like a real website and you could get them. Now Dave Smith Giants came out in like 2007 and they've just only increased in popularity since then. Like uh, I think maybe the ACE line, like when they actually started using ACE technology, probably was like around 2009 or 10. Now that's a long time ago. And you still see people like talking about Dave Smith giants. Like they're this brand new thing that came out. Like they're, they're super old. (laughs) Like they've been out for 15 years, at least 15 years. Um, and I think the, the remarkable thing about that is that like they've been out for 15 years. People have tried to copy them somewhat but nobody's really been successful at it honestly i think one of the one of the more successful attempts at copying them would be the final approach uh carvings that came out they kind of look similar uh but kind of different enough i actually really like the final approach carvings as well although um people have told me they're not durable but i've seen trailers full of those things and uh that were doing good anyways uh let's let's move on from dave smith decoys is the outdoor life is the midwestern armadillo invasion responsible for turkey population declines this is a waterfall show we're not going to spend much time on this that just grabbed my attention a little bit how the fuck would armadillos be responsible for turkey population declines i don't know but if you're interested in that give it a goog it's on outdoor life let's see what we got here game fish Parks Commission increases non-resident waterfowl opportunity. This is South Dakota. This is a uh, SDPP, South Dakota Public Broadcasting, uh, published this article on May 7th. Game, fish, and parks commissioners were met with opposition from multiple organizations and the public over plans for waterfowl hunting season. What could they be doing that's so controversial in South Dakota? Both deer and waterfowl hunting season finalizations were on the agenda for the latest South Dakota Game Fish and Parks Commission meeting Thursday. Deer hunting season passed with no public comment, but the increase in non-resident waterfowl licenses was a point of contention. That's right, South Dakota non-residents. They want to keep you slime out of their out of their fucking state. Unless, of course, you're shooting farm-raised pheasants and bringing millions of dollars into the state. Obviously, it's a, if you've never heard me talk about South Dakota, it's always been a sore spot for me um, that they are uh, that they have the only the only uh, non-resident waterfowl lottery to get a license um, in the lower 48. So let's see what else we got. George Vandal is a board member for South Dakota Waterfowl Association. He said the push for an increase of 300 out of state license for waterfowl excluded in-state organization opinions. They didn't take his opinion. And guess what his opinion is? He doesn't want 300 extra slime balls going in there and fucking up his duck hunting. When it comes to this process, it is important to note that we weren't involved. 
You can hear the tears running down his cheeks. The Wildlife Federation nor the Waterfowl Association was involved in the process. We find that disappointing, said Vandal. We think that this is important enough with the membership that we have. With over 3,000 in the Wildlife Federation, the Waterfowl Association has over 300. It would have been nice had we known we certainly would have been involved. Trying to keep out you slimy non-residents. Trying to come over. Look... This is why we just talked about that Australia thing. This is why I'm so opposed to shit like this, like when it comes to restricting other people's ability to hunt. If you are trying to restrict other people's ability to hunt, whether it's in like around you or somewhere else, we are turning people away from hunting. We need to be bringing people into hunting. And if there's problems with overcrowding or over, um, or over, uh, pressurization of certain areas. We need to focus. I love the way that um, Lichos puts this. Lee says, it's not a person problem. It's a habitat problem. We need to focus our energies on increasing habitat. Increasing habitat will increase all of our ability to go to spread out from one another. If there's increased hunting habitat, then we're going to be able to just get out of each other's hair. We won't have these little petty infights about who gets to hunt where, not only if we increase habitat, we will increase the amount of birds. So let's increase the amount of places we have to hunt. Let's increase the game that we have available to hunt. Let's not try to shut each other out. When we start shutting each other out over time and hunting license sales get reduced and reduced and reduced and reduced, legislatures don't will no longer care about hunting because we won't be a segment of the population that matters anymore. If so few of us does this, we do not get representation in the states, in the state houses, in the federal government. So it's it's a slippery slope and I don't I don't I try not to I understand where they're coming from. They don't want people to hunt there cuz they want to have they want to keep the palace pristine for themselves. Whatever. Um but I think it's bad for hunting in the the long run in general. Anyways, that's happening. It pisses me off. Anyways. Um, let's see what else we got here. Uh, one of my tabs is goosehuntinghistory.com. This is a, a book I was uh actually I forwarded this to Ramsey Russell because he's been having some like historian podcasts on his podcast and I was like you need to get this dude on there. But if you're looking for like a really awesome coffee table book or um uh, a gift for a goose hunter in your family, check out uh goosehuntinghistory.com. Images of a morning sport. That book kicks ass. Um I think it's like 80 bucks, but it's worth every penny. It's like three inches thick of just nothing but sweet photos of goose hunting from the past all the way back to where like uh I mean they're just uh Anyways, you got to check it out. Some of the earliest photographs of waterfowl hunters and their geese that they've killed. It's goose-focused. Alrighty. New film uncovers the complexity of public land access. The Theodore Roosevelt Conservation Partnership wrote this. Paper Trails follows Paper Trails follows the Theodore Roosevelt Conservation Partnership by an Eastman Hunting Journal through a confusing patchwork of public and private land. A new Theodore Roosevelt Conservation Partnership film to be released on Saturday, April 15th, unpacks the complexity of public land access in collaboration with Eastman's Hunting Journal, Onyx, Savage Arms, Sig Sauer, and Kenetrek. With an October 2022 Wyoming pronghorn antelope hunt as a backdrop, Paper Trails and its characters uncovers 
the challenges hunters and other outdoor recreationists face when accessing and navigating their public lands and describe what's being done to improve that access. This goes, this ties into the last thing we just talked about. I wanted to check out this film. That's why I did not delete this, um, this tab kind of sounds like an interesting film to watch. Um, the paper trail also features the map land act, which was passed into law in April 22 and requires federal agencies to digitize and make information publicly available about recreational access to public lands. Um, that's one thing that's popped up on my, um, it's popped up on my, uh, on my Google alerts several times is this, um, map land act, which, um, it should make like just, uh, accessing maps to find these places that are actually public lands and have access to, um, easier for us in the future. And people who can utilize that technology to find areas that are legally accessible to hunt are going to have a leg up in the, over their competition and be able to put themselves on some fantastic hunting. Let's see what else we got here. Uh, you got massive spring snow goose migration is on at Fort Boise WMA from the Idaho Fish and Game. Um, incidents of lead ingestion, that's a different one, let's drop it, let's drop it, moving on. Incidents of lead ingestion in managed goose population and the efficacy of imposed restriction on the use of lead shot. I believe this is a study out of Europe, which has just recently banned lead shot, <laughs> which is kind of crazy to think about. We did that in the 80s, 80s. I know that we were using that the first non-toxic shot was bismuth and that came out in 96. Um, however, they have just recently outlawed lead shot. Now, one day I was sitting there thinking like, why do we have to use steel like because you, know, you shoot pigeons with lead and you're like, God, how freaking bad could lead shot be to the duck populations of the world? So I did a little bit of research on Google Scholar. Um, there's no, like, according to the papers, several of them that I read, there's absolutely no denying it. Lead shot um, is freaking terrible for water birds. It's like c catastrophic. Like when you're in these uh, marshes that have you know, tens of thousands or hundreds of thousands of ducks and geese that are using the waters and you're just throwing lead like from dozens of hunting groups all over them, as was the case, like especially back in the day, it was just decimating um, ducks and geese, which actually really surprised me to find that out. Anyways, abs, this is a uh, scientific paper. Abstract lead is toxic heavy metal that when ingested can cause death or sublethal fitness effects. Despite its toxicity, it is still widely used in recreational and management shooting globally to reduce the impacts of lead on wildfowl. Recent European Union legislation has banned the use of lead shot in and around wetlands from 2023. Damn, so it's, I, I thought it was like 2022, but they must have just passed it and now they're just implementing it. Understanding the effectiveness of such mitigation is vital to inform future policy on Islay, Scotland. The licensed shooting of barnacle geese to reduce agricultural damage has adhered to the ban on use of lead shot over the Ramsar designated wetland des legislated in Scotland in 2004. On average, 2,380 lead cartridges were fired annually between 2005 and 2020 outside designated wetlands where barnacle geese and other wildfowl forage. From fecal samples, it is possible to infer whether birds have ingested lead and are therefore 
potentially suffering from lead poisoning. After sampling feces from barnacle geese and Greenland white-fronted geese, we found only four fecal samples with elevated lead lead samples, 1.2%, that may be indicative indicative of lead shot ingestion. Further post-mortem examinations of 102 barnacle geese only and x-ray of live birds revealed similarly low levels of shot ingestion in both species. Post-mortem, less than 4%, and x-ray, less than 2%. Corroborating findings from fecal sample analysis... Um, all right, anyways, when subsequently accounting for limited shot retention time within individuals, the proportion of each population ingesting a single lead shot over winter was estimated at a maximum of 19, 9.4. All right, anyways, I was kind of hoping that this would have some, uh, would have some, like, information on how deadly it is, um, but it just, uh, kind of goes on like that. It's pretty interesting, though, like, the whole lead shot thing, and I know they're also doing, like, lead like rifle uh bands now i think like california is doing stuff like that and uh i guess with the with what i know now about how effective it is for uh not having those like consequences on wildlife that either eat ducks and geese or eat the gut piles i don't know uh it might not be a bad idea maybe i don't know enough about it but it seems like it's been a success in the waterfowl hunting community let's see what else we got here We've got, eh, you know what? We've got 43 minutes logged down. I have a bunch of freaking tabs left, though, because it's been a minute since we've done this. Trouble looms for Texas redheads. Son of a bitch. That's tempting to read it. Let's read it. This is in Wildfowl magazine. When late Texas sporting artist John P. Cohen was alive, the former Rockport resident painted numerous Gulf Coast scenes filled with decoy and pintails, timeless images that contained a lot of shallow water, a weather duck blind sitting in inches of H2O pop-up, and plenty of decoy and pintails. That's understandable since the heyday of Cohen's career in the 1970s, 80s, and early 90s featured an era rich with bull sprigs cautiously circling decoy spreads over the marshes and flats of a rich and voluminous Texas Gulf Coast region stretching from the Sabine River to the mouth of Rio Grande. Fuck, that was a long sentence. Curiously enough, the Cohen's work also showcasing mallards, snow geese, bobwhite kale, and, and redfish, all species found throughout the 3,359 miles of coastline that the state offers. Few, if any, detailed one of Texas' other kind of wild. Okay, let's get to the point. Seeing red in the Lone Star State. Bit of curiosity. In fact, one could say the coastal flats of southern... You know, this started so promising, but I'm just getting bored reading it. I'm sorry about that. Anyways, there's a wildfowl... There's a very wordy wildfowl uh, article about Texas redheads um which um i've always heard dude just like uh go to the texas coast and then and and hunt redheads it's an incredible experience the limits is either two or three you know it's like the same as it is in the mississippi flyway up here whatever our redhead limit is whatever like you can once you get out there you could just kind of sit back and enjoy like gobs of redheads like yeah you can only shoot two or three or whatever it is but as like a northern dude like coming from the prairie pothole region and then going and hunting on the Texas coast and experiencing the gobs and massive flocks of redheads that decoy into your decoys, I've heard is something that you must experience before you die. And then I've also heard that you likely are gonna get a few bonus ducks too. So you're gonna get your two redheads and then maybe a couple of bonus ducks. But um, 
Either way, it might not be the most high volume shooting that you've ever experienced in your life, but it's definitely a waterfalling experience that is to be had. I would love to do it sometimes. Of course, I'm definitely going to just sneak down the coast a little bit like into Mexican waters. If I ever did it, I would definitely just go to Mexico and then just shoot 150 redheads legally. I don't I, I don't know if that's the law there, but you can definitely shoot more than two in Mexico. Okay, guys, uh, let's wrap it up. Let's wrap it up. Uh, I hope you guys are, are uh, I've sparked some interest in booking a, either a pigeon hunt or a, a waterfall hunt with me, either this summer, late July or in August, or from November 3rd to December 16th will be my regular waterfall late season hunting, I guess you could say. It's when I get back from Saskatchewan. I hope you guys uh, um, are checking out the Goose Tech app this summer, getting better at learning how to blow your duck and goose calls. And speaking of duck and goose calls, check out PacificCustomCalls.com. There you're going to find a full line of really awesome duck goose turkey calls um you're even going to find the nick johnson signature series goose call and um you know if you if if you haven't yet try some boss ammunition out this fall i think you guys really enjoy that as well enjoy not chasing cripples enjoying shooting a bird and just having it dead and fall in the water and then just picking it up without it running from you or wasting six extra shots on cripple loads Anyways, guys, until next time, thank you very much for listening in. I hope you enjoyed it, and we'll catch you next time. Join Captain Justin Leake and Meredith McCord for the best fishing action along Panama City Beach. Tune in to Chasing the Sun every Sunday at 9.30 a.m. Eastern on Waypoint TV. The most legendary shows in the outdoors is on Waypoint TV. Don't miss Primo's Truth About Hunting, Wednesday nights at 7 p.m. Eastern on Waypoint TV, the destination for outdoor entertainment.